When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spark Parade, a show where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the single cultural work that's most inspired them. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so much for joining me. On today's show, I am talking to author S.A. Cosby about director David McKenzie's 2016 film Hell or High Water. This interview is incredible. Sean is another gold star guest, someone who really gets at what this show is all about. He draws direct connections between the film and his own work, and he's super passionate about the film, which always makes for a great conversation. Plus, he's smart and thoughtful and really, really incredibly talented. Seriously, read his books. Anyway, there's so much great stuff in this interview that I think it's best to just dive right in instead of keeping you in suspense. So, facts about S.A. Cosby. He is an award-winning author from southeastern Virginia. His novels include My Darkest Prayer and Blacktop Wasteland, which also features heavily in our conversation today. And it's also an amazing, amazing, amazing book. Uh, facts about Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water is a 2016 American neo-western heist film directed by David McKenzie and written by Taylor Sheridan. The film follows two brothers, played by Chris Pine and Ben Foster, who carry out a series of bank robberies to save their family ranch while being pursued by two Texas Rangers, played by Jeff Bridges and Gil Burringham. There's much more discussion about the plot of this movie in the interview, so let's just get to it, shall we? Here comes my chat with S.A. Cosby about Hell or High Water. So, Hell or High Water? Yeah. Uh, do you remember, uh, like becoming aware of, of this movie? Is it, uh, are, are you a big movie guy? Do you see, do you see a lot of movies? Yeah. Um, before the end times, I used to go to <laughs> movies all the time. Um, I, I'm a huge movie fan, uh, and my writing style is very much influenced by movies, by cinema. I actually, un unfortunately, I have a good memory, uh, and, uh, it's attached to a sad event. Um, unfortunately, I lost an uncle recently. I was very close to, oh, and sorry, uh, yeah. I lost him to 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 uh, yeah to COVID nineteen. And um, when we when I was a kid, we used to live with my my mother and father separated when I was a kid, and so we moved in with my grandparents. And my uncle and my grandfather were huge fans of um, 
the uh, I guess you would call it. I don't know what the name of it is. We used to call it redneck crime, not uh, crime movies yeah. uh, from the seventies and eighties, so, like Gator and White Lightning with Burt Reynolds and Crazy uh, Crazy Larry and Dirty Mary with uh, Peter Fonda and uh, a movie called Moon Runners with the son of Robert Mitchum, um, which holds the distinction of being the inspiration for Dukes of Hazard. But they didn't have a, a Dixie flag cover car; they had a, a seventy-three Charger. And so movies like that uh, were a big influence to me as a kid. You know, I remember sitting on the, on the couch between my uncle on one side and my grandfather on the other. And, and even though those actors and those casts were predominantly white actors, we understood the dynamics of those movies because we grew up in, the, in an area very similar to what was being represented on screen. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of times I like to say uh, a person from the South, whether you're white and black, whether you're white or black, a lot of times you have more in common with each other than say someone of your same race from a more metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as a fan of movies, uh, like I said, that very much influenced my my writing style, what I write about, um, the characters I create. And so for me, when I saw Hell or High Water, I remember um, I was at our local movie theater, uh, local multiplex. So it's a six screen theater, eight screen, six or eight screen theater in a small town. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went up there on a date and, uh, I had heard good things about the movie. I'm a huge fan of the screenwriter of that movie, Taylor Sheridan. So, um, yeah. And a good friend of mine, um, a good friend of mine named Jed Ayers. He's a writer in his own right, but he's also known as a. a, a he has a blog called Hard Boiled uh, Wonderland, where he talks about crime movies. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily ones that are, are rural in nature, basically all crime movies. And, and he's a huge cinephile himself. And so I actually wrote an article for his blog about those types of movies. And he had told me that the movie was coming out. And he said, hey, it might be up your alley, man. You should check it out. So I went to see it. And I had such a visceral response to it. Mm. Just such an incredible connect. I just felt so connected to that movie because they did a really good job of showing the consequences of poverty in America, mm-hmm. of class. And, 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 and again, it's, it's an all white cast. So, you know, they're not talking a lot about race, a little bit. There's a little bit about race, about indigenous people. Gil Birmingham and Jeff Bridges have a really great relationship in the movie, but that's also a strained relationship because uh, uh, Gil Birmingham is, is an indigenous uh, actor and his character is an indigenous person. And, um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Bridges plays the, you know, the, the, the cliche um, old school uh, um, Texas Ranger who's a lot smarter than people give him credit for, but so are the people he's following. Uh, Ben Foster and Chris Pine, who played the brothers Toby and Tanner. And, um, you know, anybody who hasn't seen the movie basically tells the story of these two brothers who are trying to save their land. Um, they've discovered that there's oil on the land, but the land is in hock, there's a mortgage on it that they're way behind. And so uh, Toby, the non-criminal of the two brothers, comes up with a plan to uh, to save the land. And uh, his plan is to rob enough banks to save just enough money that they can pay the mortgage on the land. And ironically, or not ironically, I think he, you know, he does it on purpose. He robs the bank's branches, of, he robs branches of the bank that owns the note on the land. And so he enlists his brother, um, Tanner, played by Ben Foster in a, in a magnetic performance, who's ex-con, being in and out of trouble. And the brothers have a strained relationship, but also a very close relationship. And um, it's just such a magnificent movie from the screenwriting to the directing, to the editing, to the cinematography. Again, of course, and of course, the acting, I, I still say both uh, uh, Chris Pine and Ben Foster were robbed of uh, Academy Award nominations. Um yeah. And it's like I said, it's just such an incredible film. It gave me 
such a, a an incredible, overwhelming feeling of identification. Like I identified with those characters. I knew where they were coming from. And so it, it was almost like those movies I watched as a kid, you know, those would be movies very simple plots, not the greatest acting in the world. This was those movies on a thousand, turned up to like 500 degrees. And um, I walked out of the movie theater thinking, I want to replicate that. I want to write something that's like that, but from the point of view of people that I know and the people I look like and the people who I grew up with. So African-Americans, um, people from the South, from Virginia, uh, you know, Hell High Water takes place in Texas. It's a beautiful and tragic um, modern Western. So I wanted to write the sort of uh, an emulation of that, not a, a pastiche or a homage, but just some, I wanted to be in the same church, but just in a different pew, so mm-hmm. to speak. And um, that was the beginning of Black Tie Wasteland. That was where I got the idea um, to write that story. Now the character who's the main character of Black Tie Wasteland actually existed before the book was started. I wrote a short story with this character. Now I took that character and I wanted to take the, the things that really, really resonated with me in Hella High Water and then put my own spin on them. And so um, that's where Black Tide Wasteland came from. And anyone that's read it, it didn't turn out exactly as I thought it would. It's a little bit different, uh, you know, of course, because it's my interpretation of the story. But it's, I think it still maintains the same spirit. But the genesis of the story was watching Hella High Water. I've, and I've seen the movie like 12 times. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I, I love them. I have it on DVD. I went, when they, and I'm, I, t- I tell you how much I like it. I love it. I have it on DVD. And then a couple of years later, Blu-ray came out. So I got the Blu-ray of it. And so I, I've, you know, I've, I've just studied it over and over. And, you know, like with Taylor Sheridan, man, uh, he is such, he's such an incredible writer of distilling what we, what we assume are tropes, you know, what are tropes, uh, you know the 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 outlaw mentality in Hella High Water. Um, you know the uh, the police procedural in Sicario. You know, and so he's such a great writer, and you know he writes incredible dialogue. Yeah, and I, I would say in both the the movie and in in Blacktop Wasteland, the thing that really struck me is that it's examining those tropes and getting to the why talking about the humanity behind those tropes and saying, okay, this is a heist. This is, you know, people getting involved in a heist. And if you have a movie like Ocean's Eleven, where it's kind of like hijinks Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, the the why isn't really, (laughs) the why isn't really the the issue. And um, Mm -hmm. what I think you've done and what the the film did is humanizing those concepts, really thinking Mm -hmm. about what drives people to uh, that kind of desperation, all of the really complex issues in people's lives, the relationships with the people that they love, their relationships mm-hmm. with the people who are uh, trying to catch them, um, mm-hmm. you know, the people who are trying to catch them, their relationships with the people around them and all the complexity mm-hmm. there. Um, so it's mm-hmm. like t- taking something that can be, uh, and there's nothing wrong with heist movies that are just like a bit of fun, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, taking those ideas and really digging into the drama, digging into what makes people do the things they do, and also the like socio-political issues uh, surrounding mm-hmm. all of that. I found that you know in, in the film it was just like so stark, so many subtle references. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that like graffiti on the wall about you know doing mm-hmm. two three tours in Iraq and still can't get a bailout, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know r- signs uh, on billboards all over the highway for debt collectors just these like Mm -hmm. constant reminders of uh what's happening to to not just the 
protagonists in the movie, but the whole mm-hmm. community. So yeah, a, a lot of uh, a lot of complexity. There's a scene in the movie where they are uh, uh, the main characters are driving. It's, I think it's after heist or after one of the heists or one of the bank robberies, and they're driving down the road. And they come across some cowboys, and they they they're they're a uh, uh, herd or, or or have gotten away from them. There's a fight, there's a brush fire, and one of the guys as they're passing by, you know, he said it ain't even worth it no more doing this. You know, he's and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but he's expressing his disdain for this life, and you know, and it's it's such a great juxtaposition of the American mystique, the cowboy. You know, it's one of the symbols of America, but yet this cowboy is disgusted because he can't make a living. You know, you're doing incredibly hard physical labor for very little uh, recompense. And so, yeah, but like you said, it's that movie does such a great job of illustrating the socioeconomic uh, and class and, and political subtext in that movie. It's just incredible. You know, there's there's also the subtext that fascinated me of, of again, masculinity and what it means to be a man, um, what it means to take care of your own, your children, even his, you know, Toby's relationship with his son and his, his sons and his ex-wife and how he relates to them. There's a great scene in the movie where they're in a diner and there's a waitress who's flirting with Toby. Oh, and, amazing. And Chris Pine, yeah, and Chris Pine, he does this incredible thing in that scene, again, where I think he deserves an Oscar, where you know, and you look at his face and you can tell and, and you see that he knows, hey, I'm not a bad looking dude. This girl's flirting with me. He knows that he could have something tawdry with her if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And he chooses not to because that's showing the progression of him as a character that he's trying to do things differently. He's on a mission to save this land, but he's also on a mission maybe to be a better man, you know? And of course that that's soliloquy at the end. And that's what it is. It's, it's Shakespearean. Just to uh, clarify, I should have said this at the beginning, but this is uh, totally spoiler-tastic um, uh, safe space. So we can t- you know, um, give away the ending. Nobody, yeah. you know, don't worry about any of that stuff. <laughs> Okay, yeah. If you haven't seen the ending, please go check it out. It's incredible. But um, there's this this soliloquy at the end that Chris Pine delivers um, with Jeff Bridges, and and a lot of stuff has happened. I'm going to be a little safe, but I hate giving spoilers. But a lot of stuff has happened. And Jeff Bridges, uh, after he's the Texas Ranger hunting him, and 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 he comes to see uh, Chris Pine's character because the, essentially they've gotten away with it at great personal cost to both both of these characters. They've both lost people that mean a lot to them. But Chris Pine has succeeded. He succeeded in saving the land. And so Jeff Bridges was like, I want to know how you did it. Basically, he wants to know, how did you beat me? It's the, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of uh, Bordiari asking Sherlock Holmes, how did you catch me? Right. And Chris Pine, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, confess. And Jeff Bridges assumes that, you know, why did you do it? You haven't bought anything. You haven't spent the money. You know, if your brother was still here, you know, if your brother Tanner was here, he would have a new jet ski and a new truck and this and that. And, you know, he did it because it was fun because it made him feel good, but not you. You know, why did you do it? And Chris Pine, and I'm not going to give this speech here, but Chris Pine gives this incredible speech about, you know, I've been poor all my life. My father was poor, my, his father before him, you know, and it's like a disease, a sickness, it affects everything you know, everything you do. You know, and he says, you know, but not my, not anymore. Not my boys. They won't be poor. This land belongs to them. And so you realize that he did everything he did for his children. Mm. And yeah, he may get some residual effects of it, but they're the ones that are going to benefit for everything that happened. You know, and of course, within the 
beauty of that language, which within this incredibly powerful moment, is still the Western trope of the showdown. Because at the end of that soliloquy, he also tells Jeff Bridges, I ain't never killed nobody in my whole life, you know, but if you want to get it on, let's get it on. If you think you can reach that gun in your boot before I blow you off this porch, well, then let's do it. And it's that great stand up. It's the old West, you know, showdown in the middle of the street. Right. And then the tension is broken because Chris Pine's wife and his two sons show up. Mm-hmm. And then we still leave with the threat of violence because Jeff Bridges is like, well, you don't want to finish this conversation. I got a place up in town. Come by and see me. And so it's just such an incredibly powerful moment. Again, Chris Pine delivers that soliloquy with all the pathos and agony and, 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 and loss that his character has experienced. And we feel that. And I wanted to, again, I wanted to, to make people feel that in the book. Mm-hmm. And that that scene in particular, it's like this masterclass in tension, in confrontation, but the simplicity of it. The, and uh, I, I read an interview with Jeff Bridges where he was saying in most Westerns, that would be a shootout. You know, his character would come in guns blazing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's just like... Mm-hmm. Two guys who both have a very clear picture of exactly, you know, what who the other one mm-hmm. is, but dancing around mm-hmm. issues a little bit and having a beer. And it's mm-hmm. like, the, it's yeah. so menacing and so tense, mm-hmm. but still just this very like casual, simple conversation. It could be a stage play. It's like, uh, you know, uh, yeah. that, that kind of like. Uh, and it's it's all about the acting. These two like incredible actors that just the expressions on their faces, absolutely brilliant. Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. And I I, I want I hope people get that from um, when they read Black Tie Wasteland. You know, of course, with other influence on the book too. But Hell High Water really was the thing that inspired me to write something like that to tell that story through my perspective and through the perspective of people that I knew and grew up with. But that movie is uh, just an incredible, it's, like I said, it's one of my favorites. It's, a, like you said, a masterclass in tension and suspense and dramatic narrative. It's just, it's so propulsive. It never takes a step back. Even when it's quiet and calm, it still never takes a step backwards. There's always a sense of dread hanging over it. You know, there's even like the scene in the casino where Ben Foster's playing cards and there's an indigenous man and, and him and the indigenous man have a, a, a face-off. And you don't leave that face-off feeling like, oh man, Ben Foster's carried to punk that dude down. No, you leave that face-off feeling, I think Ben Foster's lucky to be alive right. at the end of that. And yeah, it's, yeah. like I said, just a menace and dread hangs over that movie because their lives have been shadowed by menace and dread for as long as they can remember. And so, like I said, the director does an incredible job with it, but it's, it starts with, in my opinion, it starts with Taylor Sheridan's script. Mm-hmm. Just an incredible, incredible piece of work where not a false note in the whole thing. Yeah. Everything sounds real and natural and, and lived in. The words are lived in when they, when they, uh, they say them. You know, you could feel that they, these characters mean exactly what they're saying. And so... Yeah. You know, I, I, could, I just I just love it. I just love that film so much. I, yeah. I, I Like I said, I've seen it like 10 or 12 times. So. Yeah. And even, you know, I, I think uh, the the casting across the board is incredible. But the the minor uh, or, you know, supporting supporting roles, Katie Mixon, who's the the waitress in the, in the restaurant. Yes. That scene, yes. Her scene yeah. uh, sitting with Chris Pine, but also her scene with Jeff Bridges when he comes mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah. you know, Chris Pine has given her the, this $200 tip when he leaves 
And mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges comes in asking questions about these, uh, you know, trying to investigate these this series of robberies. And he tells this waitress that she has to give him the tip that she's been given because it's evidence. Mm-hmm. And she just says, no, <laughs> this is, you know, it's yeah. half my mortgage. I'm not, you're not going to take the roof over my daughter's head. And that thing that mm-hmm. like this, uh, uh, there's, a couple of uh, kinds of dread that come out of this movie. It's like the visceral dread of being chased, of being, uh, you know, worrying about being uh, killed or or harmed physically, Mm -hmm. but also the dread Mm -hmm. of um, poverty, of living paycheck to paycheck. And the whole town, there's this sense of community taking that anti-hero trope, but really showing why the town is supportive of, of people who are, you know, uh, robbing banks and and um, doing all mm-hmm. these things that they're not supposed to support. And it's because this bank mm-hmm. is ruining all these people's lives, is controlling people, yeah. you know, uh, lending money to people who they know can't pay it back, and then doing things like trying mm-hmm. to take this oil-rich land from their family. And uh, the the specter of that hangs over everything. I'm, I'm thinking as well, um, the Kevin Rankin, uh, who, yeah. you know, he's he's been in everything he's a a Mm -hmm. big character actor but um yeah a scene where they're like making this payment to the bank and this guy knows exactly what has happened and where they've gotten the money from and he's like good for you Mm -hmm. (laughs) he works for the bank but he's like yeah make sure hella hot water you get that money there and you know you gotta do what you gotta do and you know and but the movie also does a great job of not idealizing these characters you know Mm. there's a scene also when they try to rob a bank and every, you know, it's Texas, so everybody's got a gun and, you know, they unload on them. And so you don't make these guys heroes. They're anti-heroes, but even less than that, they're really, it's Western noir. It really is. You know, there are very few black or white characters, and I mean that in philosophical terms, in this movie. Everybody's a shade of gray, even Jeff Bridges' character, you know, even, uh, you know, Gil Birmingham's uh, character, Ben Foster's character, you know, that they're none of them are perfect, you know, that there's a scene where uh, Toby beats up some kids that are mouthing off to him and Tanner at a gas station. And it's really not the kids mouthing off that drives him. It's the fact that he's not a man of violence. He's not someone who usually does it. He's always been the good brother. Mm. And he, you could tell that that violence is a, you know, like there's an old quote from, I think it's, I think it's Marcus Aurelius, but a, a violence is a confession of pain. And um, that, that's what it is. You know, when he explodes at that gas station, it's not about those boys mouthing off. It's really about under the pressure that he's under, that he's really put himself under to mm. save his family, to do something right with his life. You know, uh, he, you, you can see in his eyes in that movie, he's haunted by the wasted potential yeah. in his life. And, you know, and of course, spoiler alert, there's a scene where uh, Tana, this, toward the end of the movie, they've got to split up. And Tana's like, I'll draw the cops, you get away. And and Toby's like, well, I'll meet you back at the house. And he's like, no, you won't. And it's just such a powerful scene because, you know, we all know that he's not coming back. Tanner's not going to make it yeah. out of this. And 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 that brotherly love, you know, I, I think... I have a brother, but I don't think you have to have a brother to realize, to feel that. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes for men to express that, you know, that form of brotherly, fraternal love for each other and how much you care about somebody. You know, when guys, when guys say, I, instead of saying, I love you guys, we'll tell you, I got you back, man. You know, somebody, somebody messes with you, you know, we're rolling together. But, and, but that really is a guy telling them, I love you. You mean the world to me. You're like my brother. I'm going to do what I can for you. And so when, when you put those, those relationships in peril, 
it as a writer, you know that what you're doing, you're drawing people in, you know, that conflict builds story, conflict will drive narrative. And so you have to put people in danger and you want that. I wanted people to feel the way I felt in that scene between Toby and Tanner, where you got your hand almost to your mouth, like, oh man, he's, he's not getting out of that. You're, you're never, this is the last time you're going to see him, yeah. you know? And, and I wanted people to feel that um, because it is such an incredibly powerful moment in the movie. And as a writer, you live for those moments in your books. You want people to have, like I said, those hand to mouth moments. And so, uh, like I said, I, I, I just, like I said, even like I said, down to the, the, the photography in the movie, the cinematography, the wide sweeping vistas, you know, where, you know, yeah, it's beautiful. And again, it invokes that old Western, invokes Shane and invokes Stagecoach, it invokes Red River, you know, it invokes, um, you know, Unforgiven to a lesser extent, another great movie. I, fantastic movie about the futility of violence but it also makes you see you know the desiccation of their town mm-hmm. you know the 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 the, 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 the disintegration of the, these great little small towns in, in texas and that you know it's in texas but it could be in oklahoma it could be in parts of virginia it could be in parts of indiana it could be in parts of pennsylvania there you know there's towns that are drying up you know and and, and you know, we, and again, not to wade into the weeds of political theory, but a lot of folks, you know, we just had an election and a lot of folks talk about, you know, people have forgotten about the middle class and forgotten about working class people. And I, that rankles me a little bit because a lot of times when people say working class, air quotes, they mean rural white Americans. Right. But black Americans are working class too. You know, if you're not working a white collar job, then you're a working class American. And we've been left behind in those same cities, you know, and and nobody seems to be worrying about reaching out to us. And so I feel the pain because I've experienced it. I grew up very poor, grew up in pretty much abject poverty. Like I said, my mom and dad separated at an early age. My mom um, had a lot of physical ailments that prevented her from working uh, for a number of years. And we live with my grandparents and we didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to have a, I didn't have indoor uh, plumbing until I was 16. Oh. And so I understand that. I understand what that means. But at the same time, you know, uh, I do understand that those places feel forgotten. You know, companies have rolled out, you know, and, you know, a lot of companies have rolled out. I think the disconnect is, and that's the last I'm going to say about it as far as political stuff. I think the disconnect is who you blame for that. You know, a lot of those rural white middle class or working class folks, blue collar workers, they're blaming an, an immigrant for it. They're blaming uh, a person of color. They're blaming a, a, the, the rise of, you know, the, the women's movement for the steel mill closing down when really, right. you know, they need to blame, you know, the corporations that move steel mills out of, out of America to move factories out of America and so forth and so on. Now, again, not to go on a tangent, but those are all part of the, you know, those are all part of hell of high water in the book. It's, you know, we're talking about those issues and, you know, that, uh, that, that disintegration of the American middle class. And what does that mean going forward? And what does that look like? And what, like you said, what drives people to decide, okay, I gotta, I gotta pay this mortgage. I got a car payment. My son needs braces. You know, we got to pay for this operation for my daughter's foot or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up a gun and I'm going to commit a crime because I don't feel like I have any other choice. You know, a lot of people think, and I, I, I'm a crime writer. I, I write a lot of different things, but I'm mainly a crime writer. I've gotten a lot of one-star reviews, not a lot, but a lot of one-star reviews on Black Child Wasteland because people talk about, oh, it's just a crime now, you know, and 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 these people are committing crime. They're so violent and all this kind of stuff. But the thing is, you, what most people don't understand yeah, there are there are criminals out there that are just criminals for being criminals. 
you know, they're just, they don't care, psychopaths, what have you. But most people that commit a crime do so out of a sense of desperation. Now, whether that desperation is of their own doing or not, you know, that, that can, remains to be said in many cases, but most people will commit a crime out of a des- sense of desperation when they feel like their back is against the wall and they have no other choice. And so I, I, I'm fascinated with dissecting that and understanding that and, 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 and articulating that. Like, why do you feel like you have no other choice? Why do you feel like you're pressed against the wall? And yeah. with Black Wasteland, it was way more about the economic uh, forces that drive that. But I, I also think there's a lot of uh, issues around empathy and everything that you've just talked about that like people saying, oh, this is just a crime novel and these are criminals and they, you know, uh, why should we be interested in what is happening with them uh, mm-hmm. again without examining the why or or talking mm-hmm. about people's circumstances and trying to understand mm-hmm. and empathize with somebody else's situation and and um oh, yeah. uh it's it's the same thing you know i think it's it's interesting that this movie came out in 2016 uh you know a, mm-hmm. a few months before the election and mm-hmm. that kind of simmering uh, a feeling of being forgotten that mm-hmm. uh there are many many reasons behind Trump being mm-hmm. elected. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the president leaving office was the first black president and mm-hmm. that the sentiment is like mm-hmm. a reaction to seeing a black man leading the country on TV and saying, mm-hmm. oh, he's only going to care about black people. He's not going to care about me. Exactly. Um, exactly. Also, with this movie, I mean, like you said, it doesn't, it's not uh, predominantly about race, but just the relationship between Jeff Bridges' character and uh, Gil Birmingham's character, that the lack of nuance when it comes to thinking about race, that, or, or the, not, not really thinking about race, that Jeff Bridges' character just make, constantly makes mm-hmm. these flippant, super mm-hmm. racist jokes directed mm-hmm. at this, his partner, who is also mm-hmm. his friend, and Mm-hmm. You know, this is someone who, uh, who, when uh, he's shot, Jeff Bridges is, is devastated, mm-hmm. and you, you know, the mm-hmm. the emotion that comes out of him is so like just raw and visceral. But he mm-hmm. doesn't give a second thought to making all these kinds of like super racist mm-hmm. jokes, and mm-hmm. it's like someone who has so little experience with. I mean, obviously, a, a, like a white man who has never had racism directed towards him. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, again, mm-hmm. this like lack of empathy that it's not being able to understand race from the perspective of somebody who is not white. And I it's found so all of that, that stuff really interesting, too. It's funny because in the movie, you know, there, I think there is a certain amount of leeway that Gil Birmingham's character gives Jeff Bridges because they're partners, because they're friends. So he gives him a little bit like, all right, I know you're trying to be funny and that's not cool, man. But there is a scene toward the, toward the middle of the movie where Gil Birmingham, they're in a hotel and he, he calls him out like, hey, stop, you know, mm-hmm. that's enough. And then Jeff Bridges, he's kind of chastised, but again, because he's not empathetic to that, he doesn't understand what that means. He kind of just rolls it off. If you ask Jeff Bridges' character in that movie, he would say, oh man, you know, uh, Gil Birmingham's character is my best friend. He's my partner. I love him. Yeah, I tease him a little bit, but he, you know, he's my best friend. But I swear to God, if you ask Gil Birmingham's character, what do you think of Jeff Bridges' character? He's like, yeah, we work together. He's all right. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're friends, but we work. And that's the disconnect that people have. And that's the lack of communication that they have. And, you know, that empathetic thing rolls downhill, you know, and you, you would ask, I was I was watching a thing last night on PBS, American Masters, trying to take my mind off the election. And um, it was about Toni Morrison. Hmm. And uh, she was, the late Toni Morrison, great writer, just great 
woman of letters in America. Mm-hmm. And um, she was uh, talking about when she first wrote some of first started writing some of her books and critics were like, well, I don't understand this. You know, you, you make it sound like black Americans had this totally different experience of history than white Americans. And she's like, yes, yes, you don't understand that. And they were like, well, I've never experienced that because you're not black. As a man doesn't have the same experience with what a woman goes through. And so empathy or, or, or a person uh, of LGBTQ uh, orient- orientation, uh, you may not, as a, as a cisgender straight person, understand what they're going through. And so we've, I think we've lost that ability to be empathetic. And you, you watch that movie, and you know, let's no, make no mistake, Toby and Tanner are robbing banks. They're pulling guns on people. Toby's trying to keep it nonviolent, but you know, it's like Chekhov's gun. Once you pull a gun out, you're going to use it. You know, and so, but he's trying his best, but Jeff Bridges' character can't empathize with him at all. And even in that last scene, you know, you want to holler at Jeff Bridges' character, like, stop a minute. I know what happened. I know you both have lost people that are important to you, but look at what he's talking about. Look mm-hmm. at what these banks are doing to these people. You know, they're stealing land from people. Like you said, they're giving them loans that they know they can't pay back or they give them loans with, you know, the, the, the haunted variable interest rate. So your mortgage goes from 1500 to 5000 and there's nothing you can do about it. And um, so, you know, that lack of empathy, I think, drives a lot of the action in the movie. It drives a lot of action in crime novels. It, the lack of looking at things from a, a pers- another person's perspective. And I think that's, um, that's important in fiction and in life that we are, and good fiction, good films, force you to look at things from a different perspective through somebody else's eyes. Um, and as, as a writer or a person, a creative person, that's, that's the, the high benchmark that you're trying to reach for your audience. You want people to see things through somebody else's eyes. I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of emails. <laughs> I've actually got a lot of weird emails, but uh, <laughs> that's another conversation for another day. But I've gotten a lot of emails from people who read the book and they're like, man, you know, I never thought of it that way. I never thought of what somebody was going through that way. Or, or I never looked at things through these this this perspective, the perspective of Beauregard, who is trying really, he, you know, he, he's trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, but he don't even have no damn boots. You know, and he's doing everything he can, you know, and in the book, he does everything that they tell you you're supposed to do. He started his own business. He's trying to work hard. And then somebody comes along who just happens to have a little bit more money, who just happens to be white in a small town. And now the sudden business dries up and it's frustrating. You know, the, the, you know, the frustration of trying to play the game, so to speak, and, you know, you can't win the game. You know, there's a line I use in the book, but somebody else originated it. But it's a phrase, you know, you can't play the game because the rules are always changing and the scoop and the points don't matter. And so it's that inability to get yourself out of that quagmire. And a lot of people that have never experienced it don't understand it and they don't seek to understand it. Yeah, I find that fascinating and maddening in equal measure. And it, it tends to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, pe- people can lack empathy about all different kinds of things, but it, to me, the uh, worst offenders when it comes to lack of empathy are the people at the top of the oppression food chain, straight, white, cis, Christian people who uh, can say, this is my experience and my experience is the default. 
So anything that deviates mm-hmm. from that is not something mm-hmm. that I need to try to envisage in any way. It's that those people need to fix themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that kind of thing, like, I, it's great if people are saying, I'd never thought of things in that way. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're exposing me to something that I'd never really considered, but it fascinates me that mm-hmm. that that level of um just even casual curiosity doesn't come into somebody's mind yeah i i, I wrote a post on facebook before the election it really didn't have anything to do with the well it had a little bit to do with election but not really but i wrote a post about being poor you know and i and i, I said you know I, I was i was raised poor i was you know my father and mother separated um you know as people want to do my mom had physical disabilities where she couldn't work all the time we live with my grandparents my grandparents my grandfather was uh, unable to read my grandmother worked at a seafood factory and you know here's a here's a real quick thing so you talk about okay but you you know your grandma worked your mama kind of worked so why were y'all poor and it's the systemic issues yeah racism is just one of them there's the systemic class issues i live in a small town where there's no city water, so you had to dig a well. But the only way you could get a well was you had to pass something called a perk test. You had to pass a test for your land, that your land had to had to uh, have a certain amount of geological things in it so that um, it was viable for you to dig this well. Well, when I was a kid, the perk test was $1,500. You had to pay somebody to do it. You basically had to pay the county. My grandmother worked picking crabs at a, at a seafood plant. My grandfather worked at a sawmill. My mom worked when she could as a teacher's aide and a substitute teacher. And none of the three of them could come up with that money because they weren't being paid with somebody who worked at the local, uh, you know, uh, shipbuilding yard was making. And nine times out of 10, that was a straight white male. And so th- those issues of poverty, they're systemic and they help to hold you down. As somebody who's never really been poor and also lacks the idea or the desire to be empathetic, like you said, who thinks their their experience is the default, they don't get it, you know. And I wrote about you know growing up in the South and growing up poor and how you know we couldn't get dental care, we couldn't get eye care. Those weren't things that were a part of any basic Medicaid Medicare package that we were using, you know. And and dental care was expensive, and you know my mom would look at it, you know, she's trying to do the best she can. It's a choice between oh you got a toothache or we got to keep the lights on, you know. You get oh you having a little trouble seeing, maybe you need glasses. All right, but. I got to keep this car going. Now I've got to replace this alternator and get somebody to fix it. And so those things create lifelong issues that people who grew up poor have to deal with. And like you said, meeting, I am, I am grad, I am, I'm heartened that when you meet people, I meet people nowadays, seven out of 10 people are more empathetic and, and are open to understanding. You know, I go to New York or I used to go to New York and working with the publishers and stuff. And you talk to people about this and you can tell they genuinely care and they want to learn and they want to be educated. Yeah. And every once in a while you run into somebody who doesn't get it. I, I don't understand. Well, why can't you just buy a new car? It's like, geez, Louise, man, are you not listening to anything I'm saying? I, I find myself just, again, I just so identify with that movie, man. I really did. I think the only, I've had two moments in a movie theater in the last 15 years that made me emotionally react, made me cry. Watching Hell or High Water in the movie theater, and, and that movie really moved me, and watching Black Panther. Mm. And both of those movies were movies that related to me on a personal level, was a movies that really illustrated something that I was having a hard time articulating. Hell or High Water talks about the soul-crushing, almost inevitability of poverty, of generational poverty. And of course, Black Panther was the first time that I saw a black superhero on screen. 
right. and saw black people not bound by those systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go back to poverty for a second, there's a movie coming out, it's out now called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, it's based mm-hmm. on a book by J.D. Vance, who's a, uh, I guess you call him a conservative thinker. And I read that book, you know, and because I'm somebody who wants to understand what you would call the other side. You know, I really, especially years before Trump, I really wanted to be able to dialogue with people who were more conservative than I was, or maybe didn't want as liberal as I was. So I read that book and it was funny, and it's not an insult or a criticism of, the, of Mr. Vance, I don't know him personally, but what I took from that book, I felt like he was ashamed of being poor or growing up poor. I felt like he was ashamed of what his family did, you know, his mother. And, you know, again, and that's not to um, that's not to belittle or disregard his struggle. You know, growing up with a mother who's addicted to pain pills and opioids, you know, I, that's a struggle I can't even imagine because I didn't experience it. But at the same time, I think he was a little ashamed of that. And it comes through in the book where he blames his, his you know, that whole thing about self personal responsibility. And yes, personal responsibility is a thing, but also... I'm not very far from Appalachia, you know? Mm-hmm. I know people from there. It's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. And J.D. Vance's book reminds me of people that I grew up with who came from the same circumstances I came from, who pulled themselves out of that, you know, perdition of poverty and never want to revisit it. And I don't mean they talking about just coming home. They don't want to admit that it ever existed. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing, a lack of empathy, I think, a lack of of, of understanding. And so, you know, I, I just wanted to talk about that in the book the same way I saw in the movie. And my highest hope that they'll feel the way I felt when I, I watched that film, that they'll come away from it with a, a better understanding of what it feels like to try to be the best version of yourself when everything in the world is trying to stop you. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I was trying to say. That's what I was trying to do with the book. Yeah, and it was all inspired by uh, by seeing uh Chris Pine and and Ben Foster ride around a pickup truck and and rob banks. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I I guess just as a um, final thought from me, the idea of people telling you that they're not interested in blacktop wasteland because they can't relate to it or whatever. I know r- racism comes into it, um, classism comes into it, lots of other isms involved, but also a, a, a big root problem there is just an incurious mind. And I feel sorry for people like that who uh, are so closed off to hearing about other people's experiences that they miss out on great art. It's like they're punishing themselves. <laughs> I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, you know, that's, that's definitely an issue. You know, I think racism and classism and everything comes along with it. But also I think it's some people just don't want to deal with the issues, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the, uh, it's like, you know, it's like the, uh, the court of Versailles. You know, it's the let them eat cake thing. And, and, and they just don't want to deal with the reality of the world around them. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this as a final thought. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really, wow. this was an incredible conversation, man. I really appreciated it. Yeah, um, thank you. You know, but, I, oh man, no, this this was great. I, I love just talking about books and movies and narrative. Um, but I'll say this as one last thing, you know, I, like I said, again, I hope people, when, if they do decide to read the book, if they give it a chance or, or go see the movie, I mean, I go see the movie, find Hella High Water, watch that movie, try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It may be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's worth the walk. It really is, I think. Yes.
wise wise words and that is a, a lovely way to finish um thank you so much this is incredible this was really great man I really enjoyed this this Perfect. is great man thank and I, I would love I, I don't know how often you have people back but i'd love to come back and do it again man yeah that would be great yeah thank you so much I, I, uh, all right this is fantastic take care all right take care have a good day man you too all right Bye-bye. that was amazing wasn't it i really really loved that conversation thanks again to sean for coming on the show okay Quick announcement, there will be no new episode next week because of Thanksgiving. I know, it's devastating, don't cry too hard, but I'm going to leave you with a lovely little cultural recommendation to tide you over, and that is the soundtrack to the 1976 movie Sparkle. The whole album was performed by Aretha Franklin and written by Curtis Mayfield. Uh, I've never seen the movie, so don't ask me about that, but the music, ugh. I love this album so much. I first discovered it when I was in my early 20s, and it's been on heavy rotation ever since. It's full of incredible songs. The combination of Aretha and Curtis should be enough to pique your interest, and that combination is everything that you would hope it would be. Uh, And Vogue covered a couple of songs from it, so you may be familiar with giving him something he can feel. Anyway, it's gorgeous, and it's full of joy, and I love it. So give it a listen over the holiday break. And don't take part in any mass gatherings, please. No super spreader events. I know it's Thanksgiving, but please remember, global pandemic. But otherwise, enjoy yourself. I'll be back week after next with another fantastic guest. Until then, take care of yourself, stay safe and well, and until next time, bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.